them and open them up to Mark chapter 10. We're going to read again the passage that we read last time. As I said last week, it was a two-part sermon. A two-part sermon, and so we were going to be focusing on 41 to 45, but it's really helpful for us to read this in its context. So we're going to be reading Mark chapter 10, if you have your Bibles, Mark chapter 10, and we will be reading from 32 to 45. This is God's word. And they were on the road, going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was about to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let's pray. Father in heaven, that was your word. It is your word. And we pray that you would tune our ears to hear it. Would you grant us the grace of understanding it? Grant me the grace of explaining it and lifting up Christ for us all to treasure and gaze upon, and that our own views of everything would be transformed by looking at Christ. Oh, Father, we pray you'd give us ears to hear your words. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So as I said, this is a two-part sermon from last week, and we're looking at that section from when Jesus is walking on the road with his disciples, and there's people following. They're heading to Jerusalem. Jesus is about to essentially give up his life. This is the reason he's heading to Jerusalem this time. Actually, what you're finding in the Old Testament says this is the moment where he set his face like flint to Jerusalem. I am now going to Jerusalem to offer up my life. 
and his disciples do not understand this. And one of the, the, so two things we learned last week, hopefully you remember those things, is no Christian, no Christian will share the burden or glory of salvation with Jesus. No Christian is going to have the responsibility or to, bear the, to share the burden. No one's going to help Jesus save. Nobody's going to help Jesus suffer for the church. Nobody's sort of going to be a co-savior with Jesus. And nobody's going to bear uh, to have the glory of salvation with Jesus. Nobody's going to share the credit with Jesus. You don't, you don't help Jesus save you, and you don't get the credit for Jesus saving you. And nor do you have that for anyone else. You're not someone else's co-savior, Jesus plus me. And you definitely don't get that credit as well. The second thing we learned is that all Christians are to die to self and live for Christ. That salvation or conversion is a mark of you dying to self. You now have a new life. Your old life is gone and you have a new life. The life you used to live, you have died to. You, used to, you died to the life of being living for yourself or for sin or for pleasure. And now you live for the glory of God because God gives you his spirit. You're regenerated or born again. Those two words mean the same thing. To live no longer in slavery to yourself or sin, but now for the glory of Christ. That's what baptism is recognizing. That when Christ died, that was your death. And he rose from the dead, and that's your new life. So no one shares the credit for saving themselves or for saving the church. Now, but this also, as we're going to see, changes how we view leadership. It changes the people who we look to to follow. I'm going to ask you a couple of questions. Who do you look to as your example? Don't just think about church here. Who do you think of as your example? Or who would you aspire to be like? Who would you desire to be your leader? Or who would you want to be in authority over you? And this passage is going to tell us that if you understand the gospel, it will change this in you. And the disciples, especially James and John, those poor guys, get used as a bad example here. But they brought their mom into it, so it's kind of their fault. They didn't quite understand the gospel, so they did not understand what God's view of greatness was or of leadership And so this is going to affect your idea of what is leadership or people who you aspire to be like, people you admire. What leadership will you love? And what would you find shameful? And so kids, we are very glad you're here. And I'm sure there's some things that you won't understand, but you will understand the most important things. And I bet you, you could tell the story. You could tell the story that Jesus was with his disciples walking to Jerusalem because he was going to die on a cross. And he wasn't going to stay dead. He was going to be raised from the dead after how many days? Three days. And his disciples were fighting over who was going to be the greatest. They thought, Jesus, we're going to help you save people. We're going to help you save people. It's not just going to be you. You're going to be the main savior, but we're going to be kind of like little Jesuses. And Jesus says, you can't do that. I'm the only one who will save the church. 
And his disciples wanted to be leaders so that they could make people do things for them. They wanted to be leaders so that other people would serve them. Other people would take care of them. And Jesus says, that's not what a leader does. No. A leader is a leader to help the people who God puts under their authority. Because that's what Jesus did. Jesus didn't come so that the church would help him. But Jesus came to help the church. Jesus came to offer his life to pay for the church's sins. And so husbands and pastors need to use their authority to obey God and to help their families and their churches. Our first point is this. We must refrain from thinking it is great to demand service from others. We must refrain from thinking that it is great to demand service from others. I wonder if you noticed that there is uh, two disciples who asked this question, and we know from the other Gospels that their mom was involved. Uh, The sons of Zebedee, the wife of Zebedee, was there asking Jesus with them. But there are ten other disciples in the mix, and they are not impressed with this question. The word is indignant. We don't use that word very often, right? They're furious. They're insulted. They, they can't even, they can barely even talk. They're so upset about this. Now, is this jealousy? We're not really sure, but what we do know is that Jesus knew all 12 of them needed a bit of a scolding, a verbal spanking, if you will. He knew they all needed this, so he called them to him instead. So he calls them to him and he gives them this instructions. And I want us to notice here, this is really helpful for us, what he's looking at is who is considered worthy of following. Very helpful for us to actually notice that word considered. Take a look at that with me in verse 42. I'm just going to read this. Read this with me. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. Did you see that? He's not just saying those who are rulers, but those who are considered rulers. That's really helpful for us to recognize because it's not limited to people who are in official positions of leadership. You know this is true for your life. You know this is true for the lives of people who who are around you and your children and your friends. You know that people are led by people who aren't actually their authorities always. People who exercise influence on you. You give them authority, even though they aren't in authority. You follow them. You want to do what they do. You want to live as they live. You want to follow their example. You want them to approve of what you're doing. And Jesus is, by this token, drawing our attention to not just what is an official authority with actual power, but the people that we aspire to be like, the people that we want to approve of us. So here's some real helpful diagnostic questions. Who is it that you would really like to be like? Who would you be proud of your children imitating? Just somebody you have in mind, well, if, if my boy does this or if my daughter does this, I would be very impressed with that. Or, 
On the same token, who would you be proud of your children marrying? Oh, I'd want them to marry somebody like that or somebody like that. What would you celebrate in your heart? Because those men and women can be your leaders. Even if they aren't your king or your prime minister or your pastor, they lead you. You consider them, that's the word, you consider them to be your leader and you willing them let, let you lead you or even your family or even your church. That doesn't mean it's bad. That can be a good thing. There can be people who are worthy of imitation and you are following that. That could be a good thing. So this is not always a bad thing. We're just saying that it is, you need to think about who is it that you follow, not simply who is in authority over you. The question is, what is attractive to you in a leader? Now he compares, he compares what is the gospel or the kingdom of God way of looking at it and the way of the world or the Gentiles. Did you notice that? Did you notice that in verse 42, Jesus called them and said to him, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. What does he mean here by Gentiles? Now, the word Gentiles means a couple of things in Scripture, and you have to figure out the context. Because in some cases, Gentile means simply somebody who doesn't belong to the nation of Israel. Okay, that, That's one use of the word. In other ways, it means people who hate God. This is the use of the term here. Jesus is not saying that everyone who's not part of the people of Israel has this view of leadership. Because the church is a mixture of people of different races and ethnicities, and the church does not love leadership this way. So he's telling them, outside of the people of God, in the world, this is the way natural man views leadership. So he's basically saying the people who are not belonging to God, those people who don't know God, those people who are heading to hell, people whose sins aren't forgiven, this is their view of leadership. So what is, what does Jesus describe as the world's view of greatness? Greatness is being able to control people. That's great. You are a great man or a great woman if you can control people. What you should aspire to in your life is to position yourself in a place where you can control people. Or, greatness is being able to get your way, to live as you wish. Greatness is no longer having to think or care about what people think. Man, do we, do we love those guys on social media or on media otherwise? Those people who say whatever they want and they don't fear anything. They don't have to care about who they offend. You don't have to care about how people feel about their actions. Greatness is not, uh, being, uh, greatness is being able to not have to restrain your tongue or your actions. Greatness is people thinking you're great. Greatness is having other people do things for you. Why does the world want power? Why does the world want money? So that you can get other people to do what you want. To force people 
to serve you, and maybe even to harm people that you do not love. These are things that the world admires in people, while also despising people for the very same reasons. Now, we have to mark a difference in terms here. Because when Jesus is saying the world thinks this way, he's not saying without exception. There's a difference between, here's some theological terms, get ready, total depravity and utter depravity. Total depravity is a doctrine that Jesus teaches. It is that every single part of us is fallen. Not just our hands, not just our feet, not just our noses, but our hearts and our minds. All of these are affected by sin. Every single part of us is affected by sin. Our health, everything. Our family lives, our lives with our neighbors, our lives at work, our lives at church. Every single thing is affected by sin. It's infected by sin. Jesus teaches this. The Bible teaches this clearly. But there is a doctrine the Bible does not teach, and that's something called utter depravity. The doctrine of utter depravity, it's not true. The Bible doesn't teach it. But the doctrine of utter depravity says everybody is as bad as they could be. And the world always thinks this way. No, that's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying this is how they would act if God was not actively at work in the world. Even in the people who do not love him, he is gracious to the world and he is restraining evil. So though not all are redeemed, God has shown grace. So this is not the way people always act. We're able to look even in the unsaved world and see people actually loving each other. Husbands being good husbands. Wives being good wives. We're able to see this in the world. And so Jesus is not saying everyone without exception. What he's saying is this is a pattern. It's a pattern we see in the world and one which God says it characterizes fallen humanity and he graciously restrains it in the world. So he says, this is the way of the world, even though, thank God, the world does not always act this way consistently. Very thankful that the world doesn't always act this way consistently, but it is still, in Jesus' words, the way of the world. But belonging to Christ gives us a radically different view of what is great. And who is someone that we would like to follow Someone we'd like to lead us or someone we'd like to take after or our children to follow after. And he says, it shall not be so. Jesus is not giving a suggestion here. I'd prefer it if you don't do this. What is he doing by saying it shall not be so? He is exercising what? Authority. It shall not be so among you. So what is not being forbidden is authority. Jesus doesn't think authority is bad because he's exercising authority and forbidding this behavior in the church. He's forbidding this behavior. And so he is exercising really good, godly authority. Authority is not bad. It is God's idea. God designed a marriage, and we can see this in Ephesians 5, the authority of a husband. God designed a family. We see this in Ephesians 6, the authority of parents. Parents, it is godly for you to exercise authority over your children. This is good and godly. God's idea. God has ordained the civil government. We see this in Romans 13. This was his idea. It's not bad. 
And God has, has, has installed authority in the church. We can see this in Hebrews 13 and 1 Timothy 2 and the book of Titus. And, and he, he does this very often. Of course, we see Christ himself as authority. Jesus exercises all authority, Matthew 28. Philippians 2 says that he was exalted above all things because of the cross. We see this in the book of Daniel, in the book of Revelation. And we saw it when Brother Roger read for us Isaiah 9, the Christmas prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ's birth. He came to rule. What is being forbidden? Let's think about that because this text means something. It is forbidding something. And the words there that are used about ruling over, see this in 42, you know those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercised authority over them. Those two words that are used there are never used in the Bible positively. There are lots of words in the Bible that are used for authority and ruling and leading. Lots of words. Those two are never used. And those words have the idea of ruling against someone, of crushing someone, of taking advantage of someone, of destroying someone. A good example of this is Acts 19, verse 16. You can see it here. It's a really odd story of a demon-possessed man uh, attacking people. So let's just see this. Acts 19, verse 16. And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them, here it is, mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. All right. That's the word. That is not a positive word. This idea of using authority for the crushing of people, the destroying of people under your authority and your responsibility, and for personal gain. So, a use of authority that is detrimental to innocent people. Criminals and wicked people ought to be undone by a good authority. But the use of authority to take advantage or gain an advantage over innocent people is the hallmark of worldly leadership. Let's go to the Old Testament for a second. I want you to see this. You, you, you can listen along if you want, but Ezekiel 34 is God's indictment of the people, the rulers of Israel. And I want you to notice, first of all, he does not say it was wrong for them to rule. I want you to notice this. Turn to Ezekiel 34 if you want. He doesn't say it was wrong for them to rule. It is how they exercised authority. Look, read this with me. Ezekiel 34, 1 to 10. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. He's not talking about shepherds. He's talking about the rulers, the leaders. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, ah, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding yourselves. Should not the shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you've not strengthened, the sick you've not healed, the injured you've not bound up, the strayed you've not brought back, the lost you've not sought, and with force and harshness you've ruled them. So they were scattered. Because there was no shepherd and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over the, all the mountains on every high hill. 
My sheep were scattered over the face of the earth and with none to search or seek them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord as I live, declares the Lord God. Surely because my sheep have become a prey, And my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts since there was no shepherd and because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep but the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God. Behold, the most terrifying words in scripture. I am against the shepherds and I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to the feeding the sheep to stop their feeding the sheep no longer shall the shepherds feed themselves i will rescue my sheep from their mouths that they may not be food for them that is terrifying if you are a wicked leader i want you to notice that the problem with these shepherds were that they were a terror to innocent people shepherds are supposed to be a terror but not to innocent people but to guilty They were a terror to the helpless rather than a comfort. Oh, there's someone with authority to protect me. They used their authority for personal gain. You saw that. And they refused to use their authority to protect the sheep. The sheep became food for wild animals. Why? They weren't willing to risk their lives to protect the sheep. They weren't willing to use the rod and the staff of the the shepherd to protect They did not realize that theirs was a delegated authority. But Jesus says, it shall not be so among you. And he gives a reason. What is the reason? Verse 45, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Our second point, we only have two points today, so that means we're halfway at least. It's not like 15, we're only two. Second point is this, Christian authority is for the building up of those in your charge. Christian authority is for the building up of those in your charge. Authority is a good and godly thing. Now the apostles, even the men that Jesus is speaking to, those 12, were truly authorities of the church. And they still are. Not that we ask the apostles and we do uh, weird prayer and talk to them. No, but their words about Christ is our authority. Jesus delegated them with this authority. So much so that if you refuse to acknowledge the apostles' authority, even now, you're not a Christian. You can't be a Christian and disregard the teaching of the apostles by adding it or taking away from it. God completed the deposit of teaching in the lifetime of the apostles. In the book of Jude, it says that we are to contend for the faith once for all delivered to all the saints. So he delivered it all, the whole faith, all of the teaching of the church to the church at the same time. Go to, this needs to be reviewed all the time in our day. Acts 2, go to Acts 2 quickly. I won't spend a lot of time there, but Acts chapter 2, verse 42, describes the church. The church is, Acts 2, 42, we go to 41, we get to see that they are baptized. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls, and they devoted themselves to the 
apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. So we have these men, right? We have 12, Judas is, uh, Judas, uh, is out. <laughs> he betrays Jesus. He's replaced with Matthias. And then we have a 13th added for good measure to show that the Gentiles have been added. So we've got 13 apostles. And 12 of the 13, we said last week, were martyred. And the 13th one might have been martyred, but we know he spent probably the rest of his life in jail on a prison island. All of these men suffered for the church. None of them enjoyed glory and fame and honor in their life. That was not why they were set apart for it. They were set apart to suffer for the name of Christ and to deliver his word to the church once for all. So we wouldn't have to keep finding out what God's word is. It would be once for all delivered. And Jesus says, in response to the disciples' request for glory, you can see this in verse 40, that their request for glory, he says, it's not mine to grant. Meaning, you can't ask me for glory. It will, God will give positions of authority to those men, but not because they've asked for glory. It is for those who have been prepared, meaning those who suffered for it. That they had to lay down their lives for the church. Not in the same way Jesus did, right? They weren't punished for the sins of the church. Only Jesus did. But they were to suffer for the church. We see here then that authority is meant to be service. Let's see that again in verse 43 and 44. But it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. So you can use the word great, and you could see either that person is actually a leader or somebody who you think would be good to imitate. Must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Who's first in the church? Who's first in the church? Christ. And Christ is the slave of all. Use use of authority for the benefit of those under your charge. Because Christ is the point and the model. Christ came for the benefit of the world. We see this in John 3 verse 16. It says, For God so needed the world to serve him that he sent his son. Does it say that? It does not say that. God didn't send his son to the world because he needed something but to save the world, to serve the world. God needs nothing. Creation demonstrates this about God. God created the world. Nothing does God need. God has no needs. He's self-existent. He's self-sufficient. He's infinite. He's immutable. He's unchanging. God has all of these qualities, which means it's not even possible for him to be selfish. He can't gain anything because he already has an infinite amount. He has no needs. But God shows this in redemption. God does not gain anything by redeeming the church. Doesn't. He owns all things. God doesn't even gain more glory. Do you know that God has an infinite amount of glory? He can't gain any more glory, but what he can do is reveal or show or he can act according to his character. People can realize how glory he is. He doesn't glory sees. He doesn't gain anything. Christ suffered 
for the church because he loved this wayward, rebellious woman so that the church might gain forever. Christ came to save her by being her Messiah. And if you know anything about the Old Testament, Messiah is a position of authority. Christ came for the glory of God. Christ did not come to obey the church. He did come to save the church and to serve the church. He did not come to obey the church. He did not come to fulfill the church's desires for leadership. What happened when Jesus' view of leadership clashed with Israel's leader's view of leadership? Did they say, oh, we didn't realize the Messiah was supposed to do that? Yeah, that's fine. What did they do? They killed him. He did not submit to his people's view of leadership. He did not submit to their view of what he should do. He submitted to God's view of what he should do. We see this in John chapter 14. You can put a note there to read that later. That he submitted to the Father. He submitted to God his Father. And so, Jesus is mentioning himself to tell us what the church should be like. What does this mean for Christian leadership? It means authority is to be used for the good of the church, the good of the family, and the good of a marriage. But it is actual use of authority for the intention of the service, to help the church, to help your family, to help your wife. Authority is the calling to lay down your life to lead. It is the calling to insist on a direction. And submission is the calling to willingly follow direction. You've heard of the term servant leadership? It's a good term, but it has been taken and made backwards because sometimes when people use that term, they mean the good job of a leader is to do whatever the people they're leading want. That's not servant leadership. This is, uh, the, the phrase mutual submission is also sometimes used. It's not actually used in Scripture. The phrase mutual submission never in Scripture. In Ephesians 5, there's a list of commands for the church that says submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then what follows is a list of all the times you're supposed to submit. Wives to husband, children to parents, servants to their Uh, people in authority over them, whoever that is. And then elsewhere in Scripture, citizens to government. Children are never, our parents are never supposed to submit to their children. never says that in Scripture. Everyone is supposed to submit to Christ in their calling. So what does it mean in in, in a home? In a home, it means this. A husband is called to actually exercise authority, to choose a godly direction, based on what he is convinced would glorify God. And he uses the word of God to know this. He uses the knowledge of his family and his self. And he also uses reality. He has to choose a direction based on what scripture says for sure and what he thinks would be best based on the knowledge of himself, his family, and their situation. But he is called to lead for their good. But good as defined by God. Not good as defined by culture. 
Not his own view of good, not even their own view of good. Their view, God's view of good. So that actually in leading, it is in submission to God. So what does this say to men who are aspiring to be husbands? Or those who are seeking husbands, either for themselves or for their daughters? We want to look for a man who is submissive to the word of God. That's the number one thing. A man who's willing to lead in submission to God's word. A man who has a spine to actually insist or to lead, even to lead people who disagree with him, that he loves. A man who's demonstrated a desire for the good of others, even when he has no authority over them. Has this man loved a family? Has he loved his parents while under their authority? Or is the only way he can love people is he has authority over them? Has this man loved while a peer? How does he treat his brothers and sisters? Can this man be corrected by God's word? Would this man be willing to correct people that he loves, even you? Our model of great authority is Christ, who never once abdicated his authority, yet he used his authority to glorify God and for the good of the church. So laying down his life for the good of the church and the glory of God. Now, authority in the church follows the same pattern. 1 Timothy 5, verse 17 says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Note both of those words, rule and well. Both are very important. We see the same pattern in 1 Peter chapter 5 with Christ as the example. Christ is the chief shepherd, exercising oversight. And it says those in your charge but not domineering, not crushing, not against them, but to lift them up as according to God's view of good. 2 Timothy 2, uh, Paul tells uh, Timothy as a pastor, he says, remind them of these things and charge them before God, not to quarrel about words. 1 Timothy 6, 17, it says, charge the rich not to be haughty. 1 Timothy 1.3 says, charge certain persons not to teach different doctrine. Titus 3 verse 8 says, the saying is trustworthy and I want you to insist on these things so that those who believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. 1 Timothy 6.2 says, teach and urge these things. So to summarize, authority in the church is to be used to insist that Christ alone is Lord of the church. There is one head of the church. And Jesus tells us what the standard is. What is the qualification to be the head of the church? Whether that be the local church or the, the, the big church in all times and places. The qualification is we, we find in Mark chapter 10 verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Have any of the men in this church given their lives as a ransom for the sins of the church? The answer is no. There is one man and one man alone has done that and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so authority in the church is delegated that, that elders have responsibility to insist that Christ is treated as Lord of the church. 
that not one promise would be added that it did not come from Christ's word, that not one rule would be added. Insist that nobody exercises new rules and authority over people, that we judge each other according to God's word and God's word alone. Elders have the responsibility to insist that no false doctrine that did not come out of Christ's mouth be taught to the people of God. We also see that the church is to choose its leaders differently than the world would. The church is to choose men, yes, who know the word of God and can tell the difference between truth and error so they can protect the church, yes. But the church also has a responsibility to not put anybody in a position of authority in the church who has not demonstrated that they love the church first. One of the, one of the qualifications for leadership, turn with me, we're, we're almost done here, 1 Timothy chapter 3. There is a qualification for elder that is very often overlooked. Yes, we want to make sure it's not a man who's running uh, uh, a pornography ring and a man who's not killing people for hire. And we do want to make sure that he can teach, but one of the things that we often overlook, 1 Timothy 3, verse 2, let's read this. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable. Yes, able to teach, but hospitable. Has this man demonstrated that he loves the church for years before anyone would dare give that man any authority over the church? Can that man demonstrate he loves the church, that he's loyal to God's word, that he's willing to correct people who are straying, willing to warn people, willing to comfort people, willing to open his home and be in other people's home to share lives with them? Churches are not permitted to choose leaders the way the world does. Because we have a different master. Our master is not Satan, who uses his authority to steal and to kill and to destroy and to exercise authority that is against God. No, the church has a different Lord, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, we all have aspirations. Even lazy people have aspirations, and they do it vicariously through celebrities. And it will either be God's view of honorable or the world's view of honorable. And God calls us to gaze upon his son. To see what God sees as glorious about his son, about that man, the Lord Jesus Christ. What a picture of glorious love. And what a picture of glorious leadership and authority and rule. What does God find to be glorious? And the answer is Christ. How he didn't give up his authority, but he used it to glorify God and to care for those whom the Father put under his charge, the church. He didn't come to be served, but to serve. That was his goal, to give his life as a ransom for his bride. That is the Lord of the church. And he will return to judge the living and the dead. And everyone will bow the knee, bend the knee. Everyone will declare that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Even those who mock him now will come very plainly under his authority. 
Dear friends, we have a choice to make right now. Will you be under his head? Under his headship, part of his body, covered by his blood? Will you be crushed by his reign? The way that you become one of his sheep, it's not by earning it or proving you deserve it. That's actually one of the ways that you can prove you aren't his sheep. But to humbly say, he is my Lord because he is my Savior. He is the ransom for my life. What happened to Christ on the cross, that is what I deserve. He got what I deserve and I will only ask for God what Christ deserves because he gave his life up for me. And so, if you are not a Christian, repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. He promises he will turn away no one. There is no one that he will turn away from. There is no one who would call on his name who he would say, not you, I didn't die for you. Not one person. Every single person, no matter how great you think your sin is, his ransom is good enough, it is great enough, it is more than sufficient. Every single person, no matter how you've rebelled against him, every single person is called to repent and believe in the promises that if you do that, without any exception, he will accept you. He will ransom you from sin. He will ransom you from your old way of life. He will ransom you from the Gentile world. And he will bring you into his church. And he will use every single bit of his authority, which is exhaustive. All authority in heaven and earth was given to him. He will use all authority in heaven and earth for your good. Good as defined by God. Not good as defined by Harvey Weinstein. Good as defined by God, he will use every bit of his authority for your good. And he will bring you home. Because that was the charge he received from his father. It wasn't the charge that the world wanted him to receive from his father, but it was the charge he received from his father to bring a church home to eternity. So repent and believe and come under his lordship. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are so grateful that you did not leave us in our rebellion, though we wanted nothing to do with you, though we wanted leadership like the world, rebellious against you, and selfish, self-seeking, self-glorifying. You loved that sinful bride and you brought her to yourself by sending your son, not so that she would serve him, but so that he would serve her. And we thank you that you've not abdicated your authority. You have retained your authority and you use it not to crush the church, but to lead the church, to lift her up, to glorify her, to sanctify her, to save her, to lead her to glory. Lord, I pray that that view of leadership, that view of authority, that view of greatness would, would trickle down to every single one of our thoughts, our aspirations, the people we want to be like, the people we want our children to be like, I pray that it would permeate the church so that we would look so different from the world. That the world would be drawn to a church that worships and serves the one who gave his life as the ransom. We pray that you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, stand with us. And we